Hello, welcome to the Let's Talk Sciences Declassified STEM Survival Guide podcast. My name is Audrey, and I'm one of the site coordinators for Let's Talk Science at the University of Manitoba. The goal of our podcast is to talk about the possible career paths one can take in the field of STEM and the challenges one may face in navigating the STEM world. So today is a bonus episode from day one of our annual high school symposium, EnviroTalks. So in early April 2021, in honor of Earth Month, our team hosted a virtual symposium for high school students across Canada to learn more about the careers available in the field of environmental science, engineering, and design. So you will be listening to a presentation from Dr. Miguel Yurewade-Diaz, Dr. Kiyunyun, and Parvin Burajakar. So just a quick intro of our guests. So first we have Dr. Miguel Yorvari Diaz. So he is an assistant professor of water microbiology and an indigenous scholar at the University of Manitoba. He started his career as a marine biologist and then transitioned from aquaculture to aquatic toxicology and then to microbial ecology. And we have Dr. Kiyunyun, and she is an assistant professor in the Department of Civil Engineering also at the U of M. And the goal of her research is to develop sustainable technologies for the water and waste treatment processes that will reduce the environmental burden, carbon footprint, and greenhouse gas emissions. Then lastly, we have Parvin Baranjakar, and she's a PhD student in civil engineering at the U of M. And she's currently working in Dr. Kian Yin's lab, in which the area of her research involves sustainable water management. So thanks for listening for the quick intro, and I hope you enjoy the first episode of our bonus series, EnviroTalks. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you can hear me? Okay. No problem. Okay. Uh, so I will try to go a little bit fast because uh, we have a video, right? Uh, and uh, so as, uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, again this year. Uh, my name is Miguel Uyaguari. Uh, I'm going to give a brief intro of what I do in the lab, as uh, Audrey already mentioned. I'm, origin I'm originally from Ecuador, uh, South America, and I have been in Canada since 2011, but previously, before, previously I live in the States since 2005, so I left my home country in early 2005. So uh, I started as a marine, micro, a marine biologist and then uh, shifted gears over the course of years into aquatic ecotoxicology and then uh, microbial ecology and molecular biology. So um, um, this is a little bit of a DNA test that I did uh, just kind of for uh, to learn more about my 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 background, so um, this is just uh, something that I add in my to my presentations, and I am uh, mostly I'm um, seventy percent of my DNA is indigenous, twenty percent roughly is from Spain, and the uh, remaining amount is typical from a person who has uh, 
mix uh, uh, races in their DNA. Um, so uh, this is just a picture of myself when I was a kid. I grew up in the countryside. And, you know, and as you can see, I have taken all the vitality and energy from my dad, and this is my dad. And, uh, and uh, I still talk to him on a regular basis. And, but I just wanted to show you, you know, only besides uh, the journey as a professional or as a microbiologist, there is journeys that you take into in life, you know, as a person. And thus, you know, these are uh, my, my siblings and I, my family and kids that I had at the time. I had two kids, now I have three. But then when I migrated into 2005 to the States, I didn't know any English. So I, I went into the University of California in uh, of English as a foreign language. I was placed into a university and that's the University of South Carolina where I studied aquatic toxicology, but then uh, I, des I decided to change gears and and uh, and study molecular biology, and that's my graduation here with my advisor. Uh, this was probably uh, a week before I, I left the states, and uh, and uh, at the time I thought, okay, I was going to be back into my home country, uh, but then uh, within a month after I graduated from my doctoral degree, from my doctoral studies. I got a job in UBC as a postdoc. I, and uh, so I had only two weeks to of break, and then I moved to UBC in Vancouver, and I said, okay, I'm gonna settle uh, here with my whole family, but you know, uh, nobody told me that Vancouver was very expensive. <laughs> so anyway, and, but then uh, a position opened up here in, in, in the University of Manitoba, and then, I apply and I, I got the job, which I consider, you know, that was for me when I heard news that I have gotten the job, that was for me the my pursuit of happiness moment because uh, to get these type of positions are, are very difficult these days. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think that this type of job or position, you know, they are more and more difficult every day because of the competition. But also, you know, for in my case, I, I I have that passion, like most of the people that I work with, you know, to to teach the next generation of scientists. So in my case, the next generation of microbiologists. So and I study microbes and uh, microbes. In this uh, slide, what we have is that most of the uh, were basically human beings as such, we are composed mainly of microbes um, compared to the, to the human genomes. We only have uh, uh, 23,000 genes. But if you compare to the total number of genomes that, or genes that we have in our body, we, there are 1 million of the, or more over 1 million genes that are present in our body. And most of the time, these bacteria or these microbiomes is what keep us our, uh, a human body working. Um, uh, however, there is also uh, mm -hmm. microbes that are, uh, uh, some of them, they are opportunistic pathogens and they try to enter into our body. 
And that's the type of microbes that I kind of study. In this case, microbes that acquire uh, genes of resistance. And the reason is because at some point, uh, and it's estimated that in the year 2050, uh, antibiotic death associated to antimicrobial resistance will be over uh, 10, 10, uh, 10 million, will cause 10 million death, surpassing other causes of death, such as cancer and diabetes. So that's why I, I studied this type of uh, phenomenon that occurs in aquatic environments in particular. I do, I mean, I have been involved in clinical projects, but my main strength lies into the, uh, into the microbes that are found in the aquatic environment. So to study microbes, there have been two approaches that have been used. Uh, one, the one that uh, relies on, um, on plates or media has been used for over a century. And uh, there is another approach that was developed in the early 80s and is using a targeted uh, PCR approach where a known sequence or a uh, piece of uh, little tiny pieces of DNA will amplify uh, a gene that or a fragment of a gene that could be present in any given sample. Um, however, in the late 90s, a uh, uh, new approach was uh, kind of developed, and that approach is called metagenomics. Metagenomics is a term coined by John Handelsman. John Handelsman is the, or was the former scientific advisor for President Obama, but she coined this term, and, and uh, metagenomics involves the study the of DNA uh, uh, to, as a, to study all the genes that could be part of that given sample. And, um, and there is another type of uh, approach that uh, involves the insertion of those pieces into DNA into a vector. And that vector, it will be analyzed for an expression or a production of a particular protein that confer resistance to a particular antibiotic. And that is called functional metagenomics. And the one that uses or targets all type of genes that are present in a sample, they are called sequence-based metagenomics. In my lab, we try to conduct uh, both type of studies. And so we study the aquatic environment as a whole, uh, meaning that we try to look for these microbes uh, mainly bacteria and viruses that uh, could be present in aquatic sources. And then this, uh, this uh, source is passed to a process where they is uh, treated. Uh, however, research has shown that some microbes can survive the process, especially in northern and, rem and remote communities. There could be a plenty of microbes that are present in these uh, in the cisterns or in the water reservoirs. Once that this uh, water is consumed, uh, you know, it passes through our guts and then it, it goes into wastewater where uh, the, there are different processes that involve to degrade organic matter that is present in the, in the fecal matter. And then to, they are released those effluents 
into the aquatic environment where they can be used by other communities downstream, either for uh, recreational purposes or also to, to, uh, for consumption. So those processes that occur in, in the aquatic environment can, um, uh, can affect you know, uh, downstream communities. Um, and also it's important to point out that uh, the waterways here in Manitoba are all interconnected. So in the lab, you know, we collect uh, samples and you will see that in the video what I'm talking about. So we collect samples from these aquatic environments and then we use uh, uh, um, mechanical and, uh, and serial filtration approach to kind of separate those microbial fractions and then study, you know, the each of those fractions using molecular techniques. And the, and the reason that we study these microbes is because uh, certain microbes serve as a fingerprint of, uh, of a particular environment. So I, I use, or we use these microbes in my lab as fingerprints of, uh, of a particular environment. So, and these are the analysis because besides the work in the lab, we also analyze those fingerprints and they are servers or computer analysis that will help us to identify each of these, uh, you know, A, T, C, Gs. These are the sequences that we got from these type of samples. And uh, further characterization is conducted not only at the taxonomic level, level, but also at the functional level using these state-of-the-art tools. My, the main goal of the project or the, of, my, of my lab is to find the, some of the, the drivers that could, uh, uh, or the main parameters that could be driving some of the genes that we are finding in the wastewater treatment plants or drinking water systems. So we use uh, statistical models to analyze this type of uh, uh, genetic information that comes uh, out from these uh, instruments uh, and, uh, and the aquatic environment per se. So, and this is just a general view of my lab, you know, with the, uh, you know, these, uh, these days because of the pandemic, we are, we have kind of to, to deal and, and uh, do remote learning. And, uh, but, you know, I hope that in the next year or two, we can be back into the, our normal life before uh, COVID-19. And finally, you know, it's very important also to keep your, your life balance. And what I'm trying to say here that family is very important besides publications, research, discovery, uh, but it's something that I wanted to pass that message to you because I do consider that uh, you are the next generation of, of uh, researchers. Um, thank you very much. And I'll, I think that's, I think I have a prepared video for you. And if uh, I will stop sharing right now, and if you, if Audrey could please sh uh, share the video with everybody, that will be great. And I will mute myself now. Thanks. Hi everybody. Uh, my name is Miguel Uyawari. I uh, I have uh, my lab here at the University of Manitoba, 
where I work with uh, microbial fractions, meaning I work with microeukaryotes, uh, bacteria, um, very tiny microorganisms called viruses. And probably you have heard lately a lot of viruses because we're dealing with this pandemic. Um, and here I am to, so I can uh, show you a little bit about what I do here in the lab with my students. Uh, uh, today is a little bit um, empty, the lab, as you could see, um, because it's a Sunday. However, you know, I'm going to give you a tour about my lab. And um, what we do here is basically we study microbes in the aquatic environment. We study microbes in drinking water systems. We study microbes in source water, meaning the water that is used uh, for uh, drinking purposes. Uh, I also use uh, molecular approaches or microbiology in general uh, to study microbes from wastewater treatment facilities, right? Because uh, uh, microbes go through different processes in our guts, then they reach these facilities where uh, wastewater is treated so it can be discharged into the aquatic environment. However, you know, I'm not denying the, the good role of wastewater treatment plants. However, uh, we, we may need uh, better treatments because from what we have seen, uh, still uh, there are microbes that can survive the process and uh, they, they can reach the environment and they can impact the uh, aquatic microorganisms or also small communities or rural communities that are uh, um, uh, uh, that uh, use this water uh, or as a recreational water in the uh, here in Manitoba. And so I'm gonna give you a little tour um, of what uh, exactly we do. And I hope you enjoy it. So uh, thank you very much for your time. And again, I'll I'll give you a tour. And I'm using my my phone here. Uh, so you will have an overview of what I do here in the lab. But hope you enjoy it. Thanks. So this is a tour of my lab that I share with another uh, researcher here. But usually once that we collect the samples, no matter what type of samples they are, like from the aquatic environment, they could be water, it could be sediments. We store the samples or we keep the samples in these uh, coolers when we collect them. And then what we do, we have plenty of uh, ice packs. So the temperature doesn't fluctuate or change too much. And then we label each of these samples. The samples are uh, wastewater. And also there is uh, some solids. We have cake and this is the byproduct that uh, occurs or takes place in the wastewater treatment facilities and then they will be used as a compost. But we were interested, you know, in studying the microbes that can grow on plates. And these are some water samples that have been also collected in these, uh, uh, in these facilities. They can also come from the river, like here. Last week, we collected a sample from the environment. And it's water samples that has already been used. But we're looking for viruses here. And so this uh, 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 cold room 
keeps the samples, you know, at four degrees. So it can be processed within uh, 24 to 27 hours. So, you know, storage in the short term. And then after we uh, collect the samples, then we are ready to process the samples. So the way that we process the samples, it depends on the type of sample, obviously. Uh, so for uh, water samples, the samples go through uh, different uh, filters because we want to separate them or we want to enrich uh, each of the samples. Uh, so we use these vacuum pumps and then the samples are passed uh, through filters of different sizes. Like for example, here we have 0.45 micron filters. We have 0.2. We also have one mi 1.2 micron filters that we use. And we use some adapters and uh, like the ones here in this bag, they have been already out of place. Uh, so meaning that they have been already cleaned, they are disinfected and then they are ready to, to process, right? So then uh, what we do is to pass the samples, in this case, the water samples through these filtration units. Uh, we place a filter there and then we collect the, depending of what we want to do, sometimes we just uh, uh, collect the, the fractions that are collected here or the microbes that are collected in or trapped in this filter. Or depending if we're looking for viruses, we'll have to do a serial filtration using several of these uh, filtration units. Uh, 1.2 micron filter, 0.45 and 0.2 micron filter. And then we work with the ultra filtrate or the water that has passed through that filter. So then we can extract the nucleic acids. And as you know, the nucleic acids in this microorganism represent like a fingerprint for them. Similar, you know, to our DNA. Uh, so then we use this commercial probes to extract the uh, nucleic acids. Uh, this uh, kit is used for uh, uh, micro eukaryotes or, or, or eukaryotes organisms like us. We are, I mean, micro, micro eukaryotes because uh, 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 we are uh, large eukaryotes. But anyway, so we use this type of kit so uh, we can extract the DNA and then the DNA goes through several uh, processes that we kind of uh, uh, is a mechanical and, 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 and uh, processes that basically will separate all the components to purify the DNA. And we use this also this micro centrifuge. Here, each of the students has a different uh, workspace so they can come and work with their computers their laptops uh, so this is also a thermomixer that where we heat up some of the components of the kit and um, once that we finally we have extracted the the dna uh, we quantify them using this instrument this is a very precise instrument uh, uh, depending on if we want to do, we want to measure DNA or RNA, we choose any of these assays and then just, just measure. And it's a 
it, it may sound complicated, but it's actually very, it's a very simple approach. And we use our standards to kind of calibrate the equipment. And then we insert one sample at a time, and then we quantify them because it's very important for us to know the amount of DNA that is present in the samples. Uh, so, uh, so these samples, after we have extracted, uh, uh, what we do is uh, conduct uh, quantification. And this is my, this is another uh, uh, space for a student, but this is our QPCR. And the QPCR, what it does is to quantify the genes uh, or the genetic material. If you are looking for a particular gene that is specific for a virus, for a, for a bacteria, so this is the instrument that you will end up using. So, and this is uh, one of our previous runs from our uh, a student. And, uh, and uh, what we have here is basically several standards that are used. So with those standards is a known concentration. And then we place our samples and then this calibration curve will tell us the amount based on these standards of it will tell us the amount the exact amount of the of copies or of bacteria in this case that we have in our samples so uh that's a way to assess the quantity and you probably have seen some of these assays lately when we are uh, uh when people are talking about uh, pcr for quantitation of sars-cov-2 so probably they conduct this uh, run in one of these instruments. And this is the instrument that is connected to this computer where you will quantify the signal of those uh, uh, gene copies that are present in, the, in that, uh, in that uh, particular sample. In this case, it could be a, a specimen from the nose or, uh, or from the oral uh, nasal cavity or it could, in our case, we as we collect samples from the environment or from wastewaters, we want to estimate the total numbers of, of, of SARS-CoV-2 that are present in our community. So and this takes place here. That's the way that we are currently quantifying and est or estimating the total number of cases that are present within our community. In the lab, it's very important to have uh, equipment that will help you to conduct those extractions. So this is a very important piece of equipment that we have here in the lab, and that is called a biosafety cabinet. Biosafety cabinet, what it helps us is to protect the person working in the lab from being exposed uh, to pathogens or, my, or, or that could be present in the, in the samples that we are handling. So um, all the extraction takes place in these type of biosafety cabinets. So the researcher can, wo can work uh, in a safe environment. And also the sample is also contained in this type of uh, biosafety cabinet. So that's a very important piece of equipment. And it needs to be calibrated uh, uh, every year. So uh, we kind of, uh, uh feel safe working here because there is an airflow that will avoid the the samples or the micro particles 
to uh, to go into the into the this area, right? So uh, there are other pieces of equipment that we also use in the lab, like uh, some of these micro centrifuges, some of these uh, mixers or vortexes. That what we'll do is to help homogenize a sample. You can see it here, just a demonstration. Uh, and what else? You already saw the the instrument that is used to quantify DNA or RNA from the sample. Uh, uh, thermo shaker, and this uh, basically it does is to shake the sample, and at the same time it can also uh, set the temperature that you wanna use to mix a uh, uh, given specimen. So it's a thermo shaker, the centrifuge. Uh, there is this uh, 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 plate spinners, the or spin masters that you have here. Uh, what else? Uh, you uh, have an idea of the pump. There is also a lot of glassware, as you can realize. There is a lot of consumables. Uh, so that are used on a regular basis in the in the lab. So, uh, so each student has an, an assigned project that it can be finished within uh, uh, two to three years if you are planning to do a master's degree, uh, or if you are planning to do like a PhD or a doctoral degree, it can take from four to six years. So these are other parts of the lab. Uh, obviously, you know, there is a microscope here if you want to do observations uh, of uh, microbes. Uh, so there is also incubators. If you are, want to grow a particular microbe, there is, you can use a plate with agar. Agar is like a, a, a jelly type of material that contains certain nutrients where microbes will grow. Not all microbes, I have to point out that not all microbes grow under uh, uh, under uh, normal conditions, meaning that not all the microbes will grow on a plate. So that's why we use molecular approaches that can study a broader uh, number of microbes in any given sample. So uh, if the students are kind of uh, need to conduct any uh, weight out of the samples or the agar or any material that they need to prepare, they will use this scale, this analytical scale. There is a more sensitive scale right here. Uh, again, a microscope. And, you know, we also use a uh, uh, fume hood. The fume hood is used for uh, uh, for uh, to conduct organic extraction or handling of, of chemicals. Uh, that could be uh, risky also for the researcher to inhale the fumes. So everything takes place here in the fume hood. And that will keep you also safe to inhale any of those toxic gases. Um, let me see what else. So as you already saw, these are some of the containers that we use uh, when we go to the field and we collect the water samples. The brown bottles are for wastewater as well as uh, uh, for uh, sediments. Uh, uh, for sediments, it's not, uh, um, we don't need a lot of samples per se.
uh, less than one gram is good enough to extract uh, uh, bacteria. However, there are uh, sediment samples that need to be kind of pre-processed with uh, buffers. Uh, so this is one of the buffers that we use. So we can kind of homogenize the sample uh, before extraction with any of these commercial kits. Um, let me see, there is a set of pipettes, you know, uh, uh, that we use to conduct all these different processes, extraction, addition of different aliquots into the sample. So because there is a lot of uh, um, chemical reactions going on during an extraction. So that's why, you know, sometimes if you are into science, uh, you know, if you are planning to be in science, it's very important to know also chemistry, some, um, uh, also some uh, uh, physics, uh, and I will tell you why in a minute, because it's very important to, to, to know some physics because uh, you need to be familiar with this type of instrument, like the one right here, where you need to have certain speeds that you need to centrifuge or spin it down the samples. So that's why it's very important to keep in mind that. And we have also a record of all the people who use the centrifuge for processing the sample. So, uh, so we know who was the last user and if there is any particular issue with the centrifuge, which is a very expensive piece of equipment. So we, we already know uh, who, who may have used it. Um, but again, you know, it's, it's very important to balance correctly because if the bala, this uh, centrifuge is not properly balanced, uh, there may be uh, errors appearing or showing up here in the screen. So that's why it's very important to know about that. And also speed, speed is also a, a, could be an issue because uh, if you don't set up the right uh, uh, speed, you know, accidents may happen. So that's why we don't want that to happen. So uh, that's why it's very important to know about the, those uh, uh, laws of physics. And again, everything needs to be also contained like uh, glassware, you know, gla uh, uh, it needs to go into these containers also the waste that we generate from these extractions also needs to go into these uh, uh, different buckets, you know, they are assigned. So, and then you were wondering, right, what will happen once that you have this waste gen generated, where, where does it go? So I will tell you in a minute. So these, all these waste goes to uh, uh, autoclave. And I will show you in a minute uh, uh, what I'm talking about. So. So this is an autoclave room. So there are many autoclaves here. And what an autoclave does, uh, so if you are dealing with waste, it will go into this big container that it reaches a relatively high temperature above 120, uh, 121 uh, to be precise. And then it goes through a, a, a 45 minutes time and then all the material will be decontaminated here. So once all that waste is decontaminated in these uh, autoclaves, they can, after uh, we have to wait a few minutes, like 15 to 20 minutes until it cools down after the process has been finished and it cools down, then we can just uh, use uh, regular bags 
and then just place them here so they can uh, be uh, disposed in a safe manner. So again, and also if you are a uh, half out, uh, use any any type of um, uh, container that needs after you have wash and rinse with plenty of water and soap, and uh, you need to kind of disinfect it because uh, some of this material is reusable. So it can go into these autoclaves to be decontaminated. So you can reuse it again, you know. So there is a lot of, of trays that we use. Um, there is also the, the bags. So if you are disposing, you can use these bags. If you are reusing, you can use this type of bags. Um, that is uh, the autoclave room that we use here uh, the, in, in the Department of Microbiology. Just to give you a little bit a little tour about it okay uh so a few more comments so always you know i have my own library here uh because uh after uh, we do the extractions we do the analysis uh we also send the samples for sequencing and sequencing what we are doing is sending the samples to a center where they will identify no they will actually uh take those samples and uh, and pass it through an instrument, and then the instrument will, uh, the output will be uh, sequences like uh, have like four letters A, T, G, or C, and each microorganism has its unique signature. Then we use uh, computer uh, uh, analysis, and, or AKA bioinformatics, so we can analyze those sequences and there is also servers nowadays with the internet you can just uh, compare those signatures with what is available in huge databases so you can identify the microorganisms that you are uh, dealing with uh, there is also more books about uh, uh, molecular biology uh, let me see what else i can show you here um, uh, okay, so there is also uh, instruments to determine presence or absence of uh, certain material by using uh, PCR. And uh, in my lab, I use uh, qPCR uh, most of the time to quantify, not only to detect, but also to quantify. Uh, the genetic material that is present in some of these samples. So, um, oh, uh, I forgot to mention about the different regions. So there is, uh, this is uh, different regions that we use in the lab. So we can enrich a particular pathogen or microbe that we of, of interest. Uh, these are uh, regions that can be kept at room temperature. There are other regions that uh, can uh, need to go actually at four degrees. And they need to be like being a clean environment. So no other uh, samples is, uh, is present in this particular fridge. So uh, everything is clean here in this uh, type of fridge. So we clean, we keep our, our regions. And um, we have also uh, samples that need, or oh, actually besides samples, there is uh, regions that need to be at minus 20. 
and these are some of the regions that we keep, keep them at minus 20 because otherwise they will degrade um, and temperature plays a significant role of that right so we have heard about why it's very important to keep certain vaccines like the uh, Pfizer vaccine at minus 70 at least so that's one of the reasons so we need to kind of uh, keep certain products at, uh, at the temperature suggested by, by, by the manufacturer. Uh, I think that's it for today and uh, thank you very much for your time. I hope you enjoy and I hope also, you know, if uh, you are coming on board in the Faculty of Science, you know, to do your, your best, that's what, after all, that's uh, uh, the, what is all about, right? So give your best, uh, give to you back to your community uh, and most importantly, be kind, be kind with, with your peers, be kind with people. Uh, so if this pandemic hasn't showed us uh, uh, kindness, you know, I think we have failed as uh, human beings. And um, I try to pass that uh, 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 message to my students as well as the people who work with me. Uh, so thank you very much for your time and I hope you enjoy it, you know, and uh, look at this crazy do, you know, uh, but you know, I'm a, an, an average Joe, uh, you know, you will expect to have like a scientist with a crazy hair or healthy do, uh, crazy do's, but you know, uh, that's, that's pretty much it. And, uh, one final message, let me see. So, you know, after, you know, the, all these uh, studies, all the uh, uh, DNA, RNA analysis, computer analysis, you know, uh, the final goal for a researcher is to publish those results. You know, because if you don't do, if you don't publish, it's like you have never conducted the research. So that's another part that I wanted to, to say besides the, the message as a person you know, is to publish. If a researcher doesn't publish, that uh, may represent the extinction of that research. So, you know, always have uh, uh, good values. Uh, you know, sometimes it's very frustrating when so, the experiments don't work at the first or the second time, third time, or even, you know, many times, you know, uh, but don't get discouraged. You know, that's the beauty of science or, and research that you need to be consistent, you know. Uh, you also need to record those uh, uh, mistakes so then that won't happen again. So that's why each of the students keep these uh, records or these logs so they can um, uh, record what, how, how the experiment was conducted. Uh, and then they can learn some valuable lessons from that. But at the end, you know, uh, the the goal of a of a good researcher is to publish good science. You know, good science that can be shared with uh, your peers uh, and you and also your contributions towards this uh, uh, field of biology and particularly microbiology. Thank you very much for your time and hope you enjoy it. Bye bye. Hello, everyone. My name is Parvin, and uh, I think before I start, 
Uh, maybe Dr. Yuan could uh, have a short introduction of herself. Okay. Uh, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Chu Yan Yuan, and I'm with the Department of Civil Engineering, uh, Price Faculty of Science. And thank you very much to join us this uh, talk. This shows that you are interested in um, studying the environment and care about the environment. This uh, second, I would, I would like to let everyone know that I feel extremely lucky and honored to work with all my graduate students. They are the driving force behind the research work carried in my research group. My uh, graduate students, they are very talented, very creative and very and hardworking. So I don't think I need to say too much here and I would like to really to highlight their research. So I would like to pass on the microphone to uh, Parveen. So Parveen, please take over from here. Thank you. I'm gonna share my screen. There are some disciplines in environmental engineering and they are uh, they continue to grow and uh, mostly include water and wastewater treatment, air pollution control, groundwater and surface water flow and contaminant transport, solid and hazardous waste management, environmental impact assessment and radioactive waste management. An environmental engineer needs to be equi equipped with some knowledge. One of the most important ones is chemistry. Environmental engineers need to be good in chemistry because pollutants are chemicals too. And to fight pollution, you should know the properties of chemicals. The other one is microbiology. The objects of this science in environmental engineering are the engineering systems of water, wastewater, solid waste, soil, and gas biotreatment, where uh, biological methods are being used for treatment. The other one is soil mechanics. Principles of soil mechanics as they relate to soil, contaminated groundwater and waste materials and to the design, construction, operation and maintenance of structures such as waste landfills, tailings, dams and slurry walls are essential in geo-environmental engineering. And fluid mechanics. Fluid mechanics helps us understand the behavior of fluid under various forces and at different atmospheric conditions. Fluid mechanics is present in the field of environmental engineering as the majority of environmental heat and pollutant transport processes are driven by fluid flows. And coding that has recently, especially recently been widely used in environmental engineering. Computer science enables researchers and scientists to use large-scale data and investigate and analyze issues like climate change, water contamination, and waste management. An important aspect of environmental engineering, and in general engineering, is problem solving. Engineers generally think of themselves as problem solvers. Unlike scientists who examine the world around them to, to obtain the understanding of things, engineers are concerned with creating something new, 
something which is currently not in employment while applying scientific findings. I'm going to explain this aspect with a very simple example of my own research. My research involves microbiology and soil mechanics. Microbiologists have found and studied a, a specific type of bacteria that is able to consume methane, which is a greenhouse gas, as their food and convert it to carbon dioxide. On the other hand, soil scientists have studied on different types of soils and their properties. So I use the knowledge, the knowledge of uh, microbiology and soil science to design and construct a copper on a waste disposal site. In the cover, there is soil with the specific properties and the soil contains natural methane oxidizing bacteria. So the methane coming from the waste could be used by the bacteria in the soil and uh, be converted to carbon dioxide. In this way, by putting the science of microbiology and soil science in application, we could fight global warming and this is how environmental engineering can work using science. Here, uh, I was also asked uh, Kadir, who is another um, PhD candidate in Dr. Yuan's research group. He has done uh, some interesting research and I think uh, he's gonna share with you. Uh, please, I'm, I'm gonna stop my screen share. You can start. Thanks. Uh, okay. Thank you, Parveen. Hello, everyone. Uh, today, uh, I'm a PhD student in civil engineering, and Dr. Yuan is my advisor, and uh, uh, and Dr. Uyagari is my co-advisor, and I work in both labs. Uh, today, I will talk about my project about the tracking COVID-19 with wastewater. As you know, as you know, uh, most of the patients are symptomatic or asymptomatic. It is hard to detect the asymptomatic uh, uh, COVID-19 patients. And also it is hard to, and it is very expensive. It is very expensive. Uh, um, it is very expensive and, and time consuming to test all the in, individuals in a city to find the, 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 the to find the number of uh, infected persons what we know we know that the we know that the uh, covid-19 patients have have coronavirus detected in their stool and this stool is is going to wastewater treatment plants and as you can see if if we can detect it in the stool, then we can detect it in the uh, in the uh, in the wastewater too. So what we do, we collect wastewater samples from the wastewater treatment plants, and then we analyze it, and then we try to detect and 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 try to estimate the concentration of coronavirus in uh, in wastewater. And accordingly, we inform the public health department, uh, public health department that we actually uh, 
we actually, for example, we detect high concentration of coronavirus, which means that the number of cases are high. When the concentration is low or when we don't detect anything in wastewater, it means that the concentration is low. So the public health uh, department can, uh, can inform public and can take some uh, measurements to prevent the to prevent the spread of uh, coronavirus. So how do we process wastewater samples for the detection of coronavirus? Actually, Dr. Uyagari is, uh, he, he actually briefly mentioned about this. The, the viruses are generally much more smaller than bacteria. And, and we use the size separation method. Since their size is different, we use a filtration system. We use a filtration system to, uh, to separate viruses from the other particles like bacteria and eukaryotes and maybe fungi and other large particles. So we know that the size of coronavirus is about 0.2 it is smaller than 0.2 micrometer, while most of the particles, most of the bacteria are much more larger than 0.2. So we use a filter which has a 0.2 micrometer pore size. And when we, when we filter samples uh, with a vacuum pump, the, the liquid and also the viruses in it will pass through the filter and, and the bacteria and other particles will stay on the, on the, uh, on the filter. So we are, we, are, uh, we are processing this filtrate, which includes the viruses to detect the coronaviruses. Uh, our next uh, next step is to extract viral RNA from these samples, to extract the RNA of coronaviruses from these samples using some commercial extraction kits. And then, as, uh, as Dr. Uyagari mentioned, we use qPCR to detect and quantify the coronaviruses in the sample. And by doing this, we can uh, we can estimate the concentration of the of the coronavirus in wastewater. So, I will show you some of our results. So we start sampling in July and we ended the sampling in December. And as you can see here, at the bars are the are the concentration of coronavirus and and the line you see on the, on the graph is the number of cases. As you can see, as the concentration of the, of the coronaviruses increases, the number of cases are also increasing. And there is a positive correlation between them. And we collect these samples on different dates. And when we first detect the coronavirus uh, in wastewater, it was September 13 when the number of daily cases were below 20 and when the total active cases were around uh, 200. So 
actually it's a good indicator uh, that there will be an outbreak in the future. We know that the concentration is increasing and based on this, we can inform the public health officials to take some measurements to prevent the spread of the, uh, of the infection. So, and based on this correlation, we can make some formulas to, uh, to estimate the number of to estimate the number of uh, uh, infection based on the concentration in wastewater, and and then and then we uh, we we can also use this tool as a as an early warning system. So we can actually we can predict a potential outbreak before it happens. That's how we use the how we use the wastewater as, the, as a tool to monitor and estimate the number of cases. Thank you for your listening. Thank you, Kadir. Uh, I was thinking of um, playing a TED talk from an environmental engineer before we move to um, lab tour, but I think maybe uh, it's better to, uh, to play the lab tour and then uh, if uh, we had time, we, we could play the TED talk later. Great. Uh, thank you, Pravin and Kadir, for that presentation. Um, I'll share my screens. Hi, everyone. And uh, this room is uh, E136. It's our uh, main uh, chemical lab. And uh, the whole lab is uh, used for the data uh, analysis and data acquisition. What is the lab? So in this room here, so basically we have uh, uh, thousands of high-tech uh, instruments. So basically, yeah, here is uh, the DNF water we uh, produce, uh, the pure water for our uh, analysis. Over there we have uh, uh, some instrument called HPLC, and this one have the uh, TLC total organic carbon. So basically, we measure the uh, compounds in our water and the wastewater the samples. Again, here, we have two big machines over there. We call the GC, which again, can make some very small amount of organic compounds. Uh, back here, we have a bunch of uh, ovens. And uh, so this one, we're going to prepare our samples. And uh, over there, we have uh, a flow injection and a nitrogen. So that one is allow us to measure the phosphorus and the nitrogen in our samples. Okay. So let's move on to the next one. So this one is our undergraduate environmental teaching lab. So basically, they all of the uh, engineering undergraduate uh, teaching activities will be performed in this room. Well, this room here, basically, as you, you can see, we have a whole bunch of uh, uh, equipment and instruments, and we have about 10 working stations. So typically, the size of our class is about 70 to 75 uh, students. So basically, uh, every lab, we typically have two people work on one station, and we can house 20 students at one session. So from here, we have uh, we can do the basic uh, water treatment and the wastewater treatment uh, research. 
and also demo some of the important uh, the treatment uh, unit process, and we can combine this together uh, into the whole uh, unit. So, uh, just very nice lab, and uh, I hope you guys, you know, are going to enjoy this room sometime soon. Hello everyone. I'm sorry for the background sign of ventilation equipment in my lab. My research is to find a new material, environmental friendly material, to replace plastics. This is the mycelium-based biofilm, which is made from mycelium and waste. It performs a lot like plastics during its use, but are totally compostable at the end of its life. I'm working with different species of mycelium, such as Ganoderma species, Flavota species, and some Trimus species. And also I'm working with different type of waste as substrates, such as some agricultural byproducts, some hampers, some coconut corn, and some textile waste. This mycelium-based biofilm has great chemical and uh, physical properties. It could 100% degradable in our backyard or in our landfill, which is good for human and for our Earth. Hi, this is Tanvi. I am doing a PhD in the second year under the supervision of Dr. Julian Wan. And right now I am working with lengthy leachate treatment and I am doing the treatment with nitroxidation process. So first of all, I will introduce and I will explain what is lentil leachate is. So actually leachate is a kind of wastewater and it is produced from the landfill municipal solid waste landfill site and it is a mixture of wastewater and it happens through precipitation like rainfall and snowfall through the solid waste and produced the landfill leachate which is a highly contaminated wastewater and it can create problem into the soil and also into the groundwater. So for this reason, this landfill leachate treatment is very much essential. So we collected this landfill leachate from the Brady Road Resource Management Facility in Manitoba. And now we are working with it. And this is the power supply. And through this, uh, when we are turning it on and it is coming out, and this is my electrode. Here, so from the electrode, they are producing, they are producing charges and hydroxyl radicals, and these hydroxyl radicals is attacking the pollutant of the wastewater, and thus it is degrading the micropollutants and some organic and inorganics from the landfill leachate. So, like this way, we are treating this wastewater, and this treated wastewater, this treated water, we can use in different purposes, for example, in recreational purposes, in the park, and also we can use it in um, in the toilet as a flush wastewater, as a flush water. Thank you. All right, so my name is Carl Todd. I'm an MSc student here at U University of Manitoba. Um, what I'm working on right now uh, is operating two MBPR reactors for a plant somewhere in the United States, we're treating wastewater from a meat packing facility. 
Um, MPBR actually stands for moving bed biofilm reactors, and those are attached growth reactors um, where bacteria is actually attached to a plastic media, and we use that to treat the wastewater. So the goal of the research is to treat for, um, to remove organics and to remove ammonia from the wastewater um, before discharge. And um, yeah, that's the, that's the general gist of the research. Um, there are some complex um, organics that we're trying to treat. Um, it's kind of difficult at the moment, but with time, we should get the system to work. And um, so. Hello everyone, my name is Parvin. I'm doing my master's in civil environmental engineering under the supervision of Dr. Yuan. My research is on producing activated carbon from uh, agricultural waste and investigating its efficiency for textile wastewater treatment. Activated carbon uh, refers to carbon-rich material which uh, as an adsorbent for uh, pollutant removal has numerous applications, particularly in water and uh, wastewater treatment industries due to its uh, high surface area, uh, well-built uh, pore structure and favorable pore sizes. Renewable resources, which are cheap and widely available, such as agricultural wastes uh, with high carbon content, can be a promising option for uh, activated carbon production. Uh, you can see uh, examples of these agricultural waste, such as rice hull, uh, corn cobalt, oat hull, and coconut shell. The agricultural waste that I selected to work on is Moringa stenopetala seed host. Uh, Moringa stenopetala is a tree indigenous to southern Ethiopia. Its seed oil is vastly consumed since it's beneficial to human beings. However, the seed husks are not edible and often thrown away, which can be converted to a valuable product uh, such as activated carbon. There are four main steps involving in uh, activated carbon production, sample processing, chemical activation, pyrolysis, and a final cleanup. So after all these steps, I have a high process activated carbon, uh, which has the potential to trap contaminants. Then I use this activated carbon to see its potential for removing dyes from textile wastewater uh, because if dyes are not treated properly can have negative impacts on the environment and human health uh, due to their toxic nature. I selected two different dyes uh, named reactive black 5 and basic blue 3. These dyes are adsorbed on the surface area of activated carbon. Uh, through adsorption batch tests, uh, I monitor the effect of different parameters on adsorption process, such as uh, temperature and pH of the solution on the adsorption process to find the optimum conditions in which the dye removal is maximum. So by applying activated carbon and providing the best condition, the final solution as you can see, is entirely colorless. This means that the produced activated carbon has high adsorption capacity for dyes molecules. My name is Sharmin Akhtar. I am a PhD student. 
My thesis title is Heat House for Model for Northern Landfill. What is landfill? Landfill is a solid waste management system where we can dump all kinds of waste such as municipal, commercial, industrial waste. So how heat is generated in the landfill? Heat is generated in the landfill due to biodegradation of solid waste with the presence of precipitation such as rainwater, snow and so on and also oxygen. Generally, heat is transferred to landfill surrounding by leaches through leakage of the landfill's liner and also heat conduction process. The objective of my research is to develop a conceptual model to simulate the heat transfer by using control software and to calibrate and validate the numerically simulated model with the field data. The impact of heat generation in the landfill are groundwater contamination and structural failure. Hello everyone, my name is Parvin and I'm doing a PhD in civil engineering. My research is about mitigating methane emission from landfills through biological methods. Everybody has probably heard about global warming and you might have seen the picture of a starving polar bear standing on a piece of melting sea ice. This is only one of the results of the global warming. The main cause of the global warming is greenhouse gas emission and methane is an important greenhouse gas. The final destination of our organic waste is engineered dump sites called landfills. Once a landfill is filled to its maximum capacity, it is usually capped by clay cover and vegetation. So the organic waste inside the landfill start to decompose and produce methane. This methane emission can contribute to global warming. In my research, I am trying to reduce this methane emission through biological methods. So I constructed a one meter hole in a very big area of a landfill. Then I filled the hole by compost. Inside the compost, there are natural microbes that are able to consume methane as their food by capturing oxygen from the atmosphere and oxidizing methane. Then methane will be oxidized to carbon dioxide that has less global warming potential than methane. To, to see how much uh, methane was consumed by microbes, I took gas samples from the bio window regularly and measured the concentration of the gases in the laboratory. Then I did some laboratory tests such as batch tests. In this picture, you can see saroon bottles that are filled by methane and a little bit of compost. Then I changed the temperature and moisture content and monitor the activity of the microbes. In this way, I could find the favorite moisture content and temperature for the activity and growth of microbes. Then, I did column tests. I built the columns from PVC and all the joints and connections and hoses and flow meters were set up. I filled the columns by compost and fed the microbes by methane coming from the bottom of the column 
and then I provided oxygen for them from the top of the, the columns. These columns could mimic the situation that BioCover had in the landfill. In this way, I tried to introduce more oxygen for the microbes living in the deeper layer of the compost and increase the productivity of the compost. So all these laboratory tests provided valuable parameters uh, so that the bio window could work to its maximum capacity. Thank you for your consideration, and I hope it would be interesting for you. Thank you. That concludes the first episode of our bonus series, EnviroTalks. Feel free to check out the video of the webinar on our YouTube channel, which we have linked in the description of this episode. Also, check out the second episode of the EnviroTalk series with Dr. Gail Daverin, professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Manitoba. Also, if you haven't already done so, feel free to follow us at LTS underscore U of M on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to be updated on our upcoming events as well as follow and subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and more. Thanks for listening. Together, let's declassify the classified.